Welcome to the Life Church STL podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages and inspires you. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We, Don and I, came back to St. Louis and started this church in June 1980. 1980. I never imagined I'd be up here and my son would tell me how long to preach. but he's the pastor now, and, uh, and he's doing a great job. I'm really, I'm really blessed by what's happening. I'm going to say him and Tori, him and Tori. Don and I have always been a team together, and now Josh and I'm so happy Josh and Tori are a team together. Matter of fact, you all know that she's really the, she's the power force behind the whole thing, right? It's just true. And um, so... Uh, I wanted to say, I want to get right into this, uh, I wanted to say that this series of teachings that uh, Pastor Josh uh, has initiated, I think we're in, we're several weeks into it now, for maybe three or four weeks, uh, and uh, I think it's so wonderful uh, on the teachings of Jesus. I mean, I know it's, I have so much to say, but the essence of this uh, series is where he's delving in to the, all the teaching, all the letters that are in red in your Bible, the New Testament. And, um, and if you understand anything in the Bible, it's important to understand those red letters in the Bible, right? Are y'all with me? And, uh, so, you know, I just think this is an important series. Uh, and I must say that last Sunday, uh, didn't Josh do a, a fantastic job? Uh, that message on the prodigal son, a key teaching of Jesus, the prodigal son, uh, and also how he brought in not the, the, the prodigal side, but the elder son side, uh, the truths he brought out of that, I thought was just fantastic. So anyway, today now I get to insert myself in this series. And um, so... Where today we're going to dive into, are you ready for this? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And um, let me just give you some uh, prefacing thoughts about this. Uh, um, first of all, you know, if you were going to speak on the Sermon on the Mount, really do it justice, it's, it's a whole series of messages. There's so much in the ser- on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the longest message, sermon given to us that J- Jesus gave. It's the longest one in the Bible from Jesus. And uh, it's his first one. It's so significant. So I today I'm not supposing to, you know, teach about all the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I want to do. In this message, I want to give you a simple framework through which you can understand all the various truths that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you with me now? If you understand this framework today, it will unlock to you so many truths in the Sermon on the Mount. So you all ready today? All right, here we go. I'm going to begin this way. You know, the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5, goes to chapter 6, and then chapter 7. Uh, It's quite a lengthy passage. But I want us to go to Matthew 5, verse 20, and look at this. And we're going to focus on this one verse. 
Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Now, take note of this. Out of this whole Sermon on the Mount, this single verse is the pivotal verse of the whole thing. That if you understand this verse, everything revolves around this verse. So let's read it again. For I say to you that unless you, your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. First of all, kingdom of heaven. This, this message, this sermon, it really uh, is like all the rest of the teachings of Jesus, all the parables for sure. They're all about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not just nice philosophies or teachings about how to live life, you know. It's, it's how to enter and to live in the kingdom or the reign of Christ, not just in the future when we die, but in this life now. And he says to do that, he says that you need a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, why does this entire sermon uh, uh, pivot on this one verse? It's for this reason, and that is that if you look at this entire sermon, you can divide it from the time that it begins in Matthew 5, verse 1, actually verse 3, and all the way up to verse 21. And the, from verse 3 to verse 20, up until this verse that we just read, the entire Sermon on the Mount is about one thing, and then once you pass this verse we just read, it becomes about something completely different. Now I got your attention, don't I? What does that mean? Here's what it means. What it means is, is that up until verse 20 where he says that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, everything that Jesus teach us, teaches us, contrary to what many people think, he's not teaching us things that we are to do. He's teaching us actually who we are. Once he gives us verse 20 about this exceeding righteousness, then he moves from teaching us who we are to what we are to do because of who we are. Now I'm going to show you that. Look with me in verse 3 and look, look at this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall, inherit the, uh, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now just listen to this. After that, he goes on in the next verse to talk about how that we are salt of the earth. After that, in the next verse, he talks about how we are light, the light of the world. Now here's the point. Listen to this. Notice in these what we call the Beatitudes, 
these are not commands uh, that we are to obey. They begin with the term blessed. These are blessings upon a people who become like a certain kind of person. Are you with me now? In other words, to understand this, you have to understand who Jesus is talking to here. You remember in my message back a few months back, which was my last message here, uh, it was about the kingdom of God. It was the preceding chapter, Matthew chapter 4, where we talked about the kind of people that Jesus was coming to and preaching to. Jesus came to the Galileans. Remember around the, the Galilean area? If he would have wanted to start a religion, he would have gone to the religious hierarchy and the elite in Jerusalem. But he didn't want to start a religion. He was building a kingdom. And so he went to the crowd in Galilee who were looked upon, who were looked down upon as, uh, you know, the slums of the Roman Empire. They were an occupied territory of Rome. They were living hand to mouth every day. They were mostly farmers day workers and fishermen, and this is the group out of which Jesus called his first disciples. So when Jesus gives, y'all with me? When Jesus gives these things in these beatitudes, blessed are you if you're poor, blessed are you if you're meek, he's giving it to a people who fully understand this because this is the scum, those who've been oppressed and have been preyed upon in society. And so he says to them, he said, listen, in other words, if you understand that, you understand in the Beatitudes, Jesus is not giving some kind of lofty spiritual ideology or philosophy, philosophical ideas about if you become like this, you know, this, oh, this great meek person and this poor in the spirit and all this. No, he comes to the lowest of the low who are hurting and oppressed Man, they are the butt end of every joke they're being racially prejudiced against. And he comes to that group and he says, here's what I want you to know. Those who are poor in spirit, they're the ones who's going to be blessed. Those who are meek, those who are downtrodden, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What does that mean? He's not talking about those who are hungering and thirsting for right living. You know, so they can do more right things. He's saying those who are so down that they are hungering and thirsting for justice in the world, they're seeing so much injustice in the world that they're hungering for things to be put right. Are you listening to me? Now, why is that important? It's important because it's only people like that who end up realizing that they have nothing to give or nothing to offer, therefore cast their full life upon dependence upon Christ. People most of the time do not come to, God, to Christ and give their life to Him until they feel the props are taken out from under them and they need Him desperately. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter to the heaven. The kingdom of heaven, he didn't say they can't. The only reason it's hard for them is because it's hard for them to see that they need him. They feel that they have too much to bring to the table. Are you all with me now? So this is what Jesus is saying. The Beatitudes, all these here, the poor in the spirit, the meek, you know, and, you know, and all those, the persecuted. These are, it's not like the poor in the spirit 
gets one thing, and then the meat gets something else. Y'all get this. I want you to, before I go on, I want you to make sure you get this. Sometimes we look at these things as a list of things that, oh, you know, they're good ideas that we're supposed to apply to our life. No, they're not good ideas that we're supposed to apply to our life. It's not like we're looking, now I've got to be poor in spirit, so we work on that a while. Now I've got to be meek, so I work on that a while. And so like the poor get, when spirit get one thing, the meek get another. No, this is much like the gifts, uh, much like the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the spirit, faith, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentle kindness, all of those. Those are not different fruits. They're all one fruit. It's one kind of person that manifests the spirit of Christ in all of these different ways. And so what the Beatitudes are is this one kind of Jesus saying, this is the kind of person that I will make you to be if you give your life to me and my righteousness is imparted to you, then you will become this kind of person that manifests in these different ways. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Anyway, I think it is. Good preaching, Rick. Thank you so much. All right. Now, having said that, let's just go on. Watch this. So up until this point, up until verse 20, what happens is, now follow with me, what happens is, is Jesus is teaching us that this is the kind of person that you are, a kind of person that you become or that you are if you give your life to Christ and have his righteousness. And then once he passes verse 20, he changes from that to command, not commands, but telling us things that we do need to do or that we should do. And I love this. You know, I was studying this a long time ago, and there a, uh, was a great theologian. His name was Dr. Eldon Ladd. This guy was, you know, popular back in the 1960s and 70s. And Dr. Eldon Ladd said this, and I've never forgot it, or I read this, where he said that in the Sermon on the Mount, now you ready for this? I'm going to give you this, and, and then I'm going to explain it, so don't worry about it. He said, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are indicatives and there are imperatives. Everybody say indicatives and imperatives. Now, I want you to see this. Listen to this. What indica- Here's what it is. What indicatives are, indicatives, you see this up here, indicatives serve to indicate. And here's what Dr. Ladd said. He said, up until verse 20, he said, these are indicatives. In other words, they they're serve to indicate the kind of person that is a person who has given their life to Christ. In other words, this is who you are. This is the kind of person you are. He said, then there are imperatives. Imperatives are necessary expressed by a command. And he said, the imperatives are given after verse 20 on through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why would you say, now I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. What in the world is this all about? Why is this important? If you, if you listen to me and get this, at least this really helped me tremendously back when I got a hold of this. But he said this, he said, what's so important in understanding the Sermon on the Mount is you have to understand which side of the indicative, the imperative is on. In other words, listen to this, 
You remember in this, verse 20 talks about this righteousness you need that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. He begins before that laying out these indicatives. Blessed are you that you're this kind of person. And then after that, he lays out what this kind of person does with their life, how they live their life. And he says everything depends on which side of the indicative the imperative is on. If you get the imperative, which are the commands, in other words, I need to be like this, I need to live like this. If you get that imperative before the indicative, I am like this, this is who I am, then that's heresy. That's heresy. That's not Christianity at all. That's, that's religion. That's Buddhism is like that. Buddhism has the imperative before the indicative. Hinduism has the imperative before the indicative. You know, Islam has the imperative before the indicative. It's live good, do good, appease the gods, obey the commands so that I can be something that I want to be, so that I can be righteous, I can be pleasing to God. That's religion. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He's building a kingdom that's based on a relationship. Hallelujah. And in this, it's totally different than any religion. Religion is imperative before indicative. The, the, the kingdom Jesus came to build is totally different. It's indicative before imperative. I, be, I am who I am before I do what I do. You know, the apostle Paul, his entire life lived trying, putting the imperative before the indicative. Paul lived, he was Saul then. Saul lived working so hard trying to do good, be right, in order to become right, in order to be righteous, until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, had this shining, blinding light, knocks him off of his high horse. He becomes literally blinded. And when he sees Jesus, he catches this revelation of Jesus all of a sudden, light comes in, burning into his soul. He's got a revelation. You are the Son of God. And it's proven he believes it because the first thing out of his mouth, he calls him Lord. So immediately, this guy who lived all of his life putting the imperative before the indicative, now he meets Jesus. He believes he's made righteous. And the first thing out of his mouth is, Lord, what do you want me to do? So he gets the indicative first, and out of that, there comes an automatic, there must be something that's an imperative based upon the indicative that's just happened to me. Y'all get that? And so this is huge because there's always this kind of debate in the church at large uh, between grace and works, between, you know, well, is it, is it by faith in the cross alone and what we do really doesn't matter at all? Or does our works, you know, all of our obedience and right living, does that have something to do with adding to, you know, our right standing with God? And the truth is, is that neither one of those are true. They work together. That if, unless you first become grounded in the indicative, in you are who you are based 
upon the cross alone and nothing else, then you will never ever be able to live out the right living and right works that Christ has called you to. But by the same token, on the other hand, taken on the other hand, this whole easy, greasy, I was gonna say easy peasy, but that would be yeah, anyway. Easy peasy, uh, greasy, sloppy grace that sometimes you hear in the church. Oh, you know, God's grace covers it. You know, the indicative is the important thing and the only thing. And therefore, really, what I do doesn't matter. That's heresy also. Because although it's wrong to get the imperative before the indicative, it's just as wrong to say, listen to this, that the indicative has no resulting imperative. It's just as wrong to say, to say that what has happened to me has no indication in the way I live my life out. In other words, y'all see that. So you see, on one hand, we're talking about the indicative about grace. You are who you are based upon the cross alone. We rejoice in that. And on one side, there's probably half of us in this congregation that desperately just need that. You're the ones that are working so hard trying to be right, and you're living in condemnation all the time, never feeling loved by God, never feeling like you're on solid footing with Christ. And then maybe there's the other half of you here today. Oh, you feel just perfectly right. You feel like everything's just fine. You're never bothered with your conscience so much so that really you're loose and sloppy and casual in your living and your relationship with Christ because you're saved. You're forgiven. You're right with God. You know these things, and therefore your living doesn't really matter. God covers it all with His grace. And folks, neither one of those are true. The, the gospel message is, is dependent on us intricately connecting these two things together. Are you all still with me today? Are, I'm sorry I'm making you think hard today, but anyway, sometimes you need to think. As you know, many of you have been around a long time know that one of my pet peeves is, you know, people think they get baptized in the Holy Spirit and they lose their common sense. You know, it's like they don't think anymore. We need thinking Christians. So everybody say, I'm a thinking Christian, all right? All right, so let's go on. All right, just watch this. So let me just tell you this. So again, keep this in mind. In the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just giving you a framework to understand. Then go read it. And then put everything in this framework. There are the indicatives, right? And then you come the imperatives. The indicative comes before the imperative. In fact, the imperatives flow out of the indicative. I remember many years ago, God gave me this little word, you know, statement. And, you know, Joyce Meyer, Joyce, she, she actually preached it all over the world. And then people think she came up with it. But... She didn't come up with it. I came up with it. But there, there's a few of those things, but we won't talk about them. I, I mean, I don't hold unforgiveness, but, you know, it's like you. Uh, of course, those you don't know, I love, we love Joyce, love Joyce. But, I'm, but the point is, it's still true, uh, what I just said. 
And because this is probably back in oh, 1982, 83, God gave me this. And that is, speaking of this righteousness, the indicative, I didn't have these words, indicative for the imperative, but the Lord gave it to me this way. He said, it's important for you to understand in Christ that your do comes out of your who. That your who doesn't come from your do. Now that's, that's, that's the Jefferson County way of saying that. Uh, I'm a Jefferson County boy, so I can say that. Don't worry, I'm not putting people down. That, that your do comes out of your who. Now, that's so simple. But the thing is, many Christians live their lives with this mentality that my do creates my who. And what you're doing is you're trying to labor for things that you can never accomplish. You know, I don't want to complicate this, but I, let me just say this, that they're, they're all through, I don't want to oversimplify either, but I, I want to say that all through Scripture, let's just categorize it this way. In Scripture, there are things that you are to labor for, and then there are things that you're to rest in. It's just true. There are things that you're to labor for and that there are things that you're to rest in. And many Christians spend their lives laboring for what they're supposed to rest in. And then they end up resting in what they're supposed to labor for. In other words, because you're not equipped to fight the fight, to labor the labor until you rest the rest. Oh, Jesus, help me. Oh, I'm coming, Elizabeth. I love that. <laughs> Only you older people will know that. I'm coming, Elizabeth. Red Fox, Red Fox, you know that? No, you don't know that, all right. Look up Red Fox, you know, the, the junk man. What is his name? Anyway. Sanford and Sons. I'm coming, Elizabeth. Uh, so... <laughs> So you can, you're not ready to fight the fight. In other words, the only way you can, you can feel a sense of confidence in your authority to take ground is it comes from your position of rest in Christ. And so if I spend my entire Christian life laboring, trying to feel loved by God, I can never take any ground personally in my life or family or in my city or world around me. I can't do it because the fight is the, what I labor for in Scripture is built on what I rest in. Does that make sense? If I'm laboring constantly to get what I'm supposed to be resting in, I can never fight for what I'm supposed to be fighting for. Y'all need to just probably need to stop and say see law. Think about that just a moment. You know, let me let me just say this. If you look, here's another kind of uh, overarching uh, structure that you can look at Ephesians, the book of Ephesians with. If you look at the back book of Ephesians, I studied this one day and all of a sudden it just dawned on me. 
Ephesians has six chapters. And of those six chapters, it starts out, this is both of mine, it starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. And for those first several chapters, the word sit is repeated over and over and over again. Those who sit in Christ Jesus, seated in heavenly places, sitting in Christ. For the first, those first several chapters, it's sit. Then once you to get chapter 4, verse 1, sitting stops. I love it. And from chapter 4, verse 1 to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, you see the word over and over stand, or not stand, you see the word over and over walk. He begins chapter 4, verse 1, walk therefore, since you're sitting, walk therefore worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. And then for the next couple of chapters, he talks about walking, not sitting. And then once you get to Ephesians 6, I got to let the cat out of the bag, didn't I? 6, 10, from there on the rest of the chapter, you know what he goes to? He goes from sitting to walking to stand there, having therefore done all to stand, stand therefore in Christ Jesus. The weapons of your warfare, being not carnal, but mighty in God through pulling down strongholds. Are you with me now? And so I saw all of a sudden realize, and you can look this through all Paul's epistles, but here you can see it clearly, that Paul begins by establishing where we're sitting first. Sitting is a place of resting. And then after he establishes firmly who you're seated in, your position of seating, then he moves on to your walk. Your walk is your life of obedience to God, your life of integrity, your lifestyle. And then once he firmly establishes that, only then does he go to the fight. And I saw clearly what he's saying. He's saying you're never, ever, you know, let me back up, say it this way. You know, we have many Christians, you know, who aren't firmly resting in their position in Christ. They're not careful walking out and living out the, the life of obedience to Christ. But yet I hear them constantly trying to fight the fight. They're, they're blasting off these phrases, in the name of Jesus, come out and go all forth. And You know, there was a dear intercessor in our church many years ago that she was praying in, our church, in the church all the time every day. I mean, hours and hours every day. I thought, wow, this woman's really a woman of prayer. And so I walked in the auditorium one day, and she asked me, she said, Pastor, she says, the Lord has told me to go down to the arch and go up on the top of the arch and pull down the ruling spirit over St. Louis. She said, I want to know if you'll go down with me and pull the ruling spirit off of St. Louis. And I said, no, I'm not going to go down there and pull, you know, do that. You know, number one, the Lord hasn't told me to do that. And number two, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to take more than you. <laughs> I'm not going with you and me alone. And, uh, you know, my, my point is, I, I, even in that, I think, you know, people just don't think. They think, me and you, we're going to go pull the ruling spirit down over St. Louis. And you don't realize what you're dealing with. We many times, many Christians, especially in spirit-filled communities, they, they speak about fighting stuff, warfare stuff, and it's all just a bunch of just like, they haven't thought it through. It's not based on firm foundations. Are you with me now? 
And uh, I hate to say this. Dawn, is it okay to say this? You don't know what I'm going to say, so you don't know what I'm saying. But, you know, the other, the other day I was watching the news, and, you know, the, there's truckers in, in uh, Canada, and which, you know, look, I'm not making a political statement, but, it's, I mean, look, I, I think I support, support them. I think they're doing, we're doing a great job. But I saw them the other day, you know, having this big thing around the parliament, all these hundreds of people, which I think was a good, that's a good way. Protesting is a good thing. Civil protest is a good thing. It's important. And so they were doing that. And I thought, okay, great. But then they had the podium up there and they had several people get up, preachers, I guess, get up and speak. And when they spoke, I died a thousand deaths. I thought, my God, I don't even want to say I'm a Christian like they are. I don't know. I'm with them. Because they gone up there. Now, here they are in front of Parliament, and all the news media is there. It's broadcast around the world. And they get up there, and they're just all, that blah, you know, we're casting down three spirits over, you know, four blocks, and, you know, going to shaka shaka mahaya, and I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy. You know, it, it just, I told Donna, I said, Donna, if you can do something like that, I said, you need to get the right representatives up there to say what, you're, what you need to say and what you're supposed to say, not get up there and do three shakamahais and, you know, four whatever, you know, karate chops on the devil. It's like, <clears throat> and so it's like I, I, I said, you know what? People don't realize, they, they take, and I mean, here I'm speaking to us, a spirit-filled community. We believe in the power of God. We believe in the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, we've seen, I've seen, I know people healed miraculously of, of many things. So that we believe that kind of stuff. I, I've seen demons cast out. And some of you have too. I believe in that stuff. I've had prophetic words that given to me that nobody could know. I mean, all that kind of stuff. I believe in that stuff. So, but my point is, is that you can really never effectively move in that, what I would call the fighting realm, unless you first build it upon the proper walk, you with me now, and you're not ready to walk the walk until you're firmly seated in who you are in Christ Jesus. So even there in Ephesians, you got the same thing. You've got to first establish where you're resting, what you're resting in, and out of that place of rest, then you can fight for what God has called you to fight for. Somebody say amen, all right? All right. Well, I took a lot of time to say that, but anyway, I hope you got that. So let's go on. Let's go on. Let me just say it this way. I'm going to say it one more way. You know, if I had a son named Johnny, and I said to Johnny, Johnny, you are my son. And you have red hair. Now, it's interesting, you know. Johnny can do, Johnny has nothing to do with being my son and having red hair. He can't do anything about that. Those are indicatives of who Johnny is. It's what kind of person he is. The kind of. Who is my son and has red hair. But if I tell Johnny, Johnny, go clean your room. Now, 
Johnny, that's not an indicative, that's an imperative, right? And Johnny has everything to do with going and cleaning his room. And if Johnny doesn't go and clean his room, then I will discipline Johnny based on whether or not he obeys what I told him to do. So he will be disciplined based upon cleaning his room, but I can never discipline him on the basis of him having red hair. Are you with me now? In other words, in other words, whether if he cleans his room or not, now he should clean his room, but whether he cleans his room or not, he's still going to be my son and he's still going to have red hair. That's deep, isn't it? The two have nothing to do with each other. Now, I may put him in his room, lock him in his room for a while, you know, and then I put him in the corner or something, ground him. But I'm not grounding him for who he is or who he isn't. Oh, listen. Because he didn't clean his room on time. I'm not up there with some kind of whatever it is, daisy, dandelion, whatever it is, saying, you know, she, he loves me, loves me not, loves me. In other words, you know, trying to decide whether I love Johnny based upon whether he cleans his room. He's still my son, and he still has red hair, even if he never cleans my room. Now, it cleans his room. If he never cleans his room and never does what I tell him to do, he may not end up enjoying the inheritance that I want to give him. I might withhold his inheritance, but I cannot withhold his sonship. And you know, a lot of Christians live that way where they're not living in inheritance, but they're still sons and daughters of God. You know, I'll say this in serious point that many, I've had this question many times about suicide, you know, and so-and-so, you know, whether they were Christian, love God, they took their life. Now we're left with this huge, big question, like, what do we think, you know? Are they in heaven? I mean, they, you know, they, they love God, but then they took their own life. And I tell people a couple of things uh, in that situation. One is simply this, and that is, which is not to my point, the second one will be, but one thing I tell them is I say, you know, when someone takes their life, a Christian takes their life, that usually, just like anybody else that takes their life, it's, be, it's not because they don't believe in God or the cross anymore. It's because they failed to believe in their ability to tap in to what the cross has done for them. Their accusation is not against God, it's against themselves. And so God is not disowning them. But secondly, and to my point today, is this. I tell them that you must understand that people sin in this life. All Christians still sin in this life. And it would be crazy, wouldn't it, if 
if suicide were the only sin that God couldn't forgive because it just happens to be the one that you don't have a chance to repent of. That, that, that there's no question, 10 seconds later after you did it, you would repent. I guarantee you. You're sorry. I guarantee you after they did it, they're sorry. But they don't have a chance to repent. And then my point is simply this, and I said, you, th- you have this mindset of the imperative being before the indicative. That God is up there looking at you saying, all right, well, you know, you did good today, so you're my son or my daughter. I love you. I love you. You didn't do good today. Whoop, take some of that love back. Withhold a little, just like your mom or your daddy prob- possibly did. Not all of you, but some of you. Your mom or daddy was that way. It's like they gave you approval and acceptance or love based upon how well you behaved or, your, or performed or obedience. And so you transfer this then to God. And it's even exact. Are you all still with me today? It's even exacerbated by the fact that so many parents do this. It's crazy we do. It's like we raise our little kids where you got, you got little Johnny and little Susie there. And then little John, they're at the table, and little Johnny spills his milk. And so daddy comes over and whack, whack, whack. And Johnny, yelling at him, you spilt your milk. You're a bad boy, Johnny. You're a bad boy, Johnny. And he's crying, and little Susie's over here, and she takes her milk, and she said, Daddy, she said, I didn't spill my milk. I'm a good girl, aren't I? And we teach our kids from a very young age that they're good or bad based upon their performance and not based upon who they are. And then we wonder why it's so hard to, tra- to not transfer for that philosophy or mentality over to our relationship with God where, the, you know, it's like we look and we say, oh, they did bad. God, look at them. They're a bad boy, aren't they? But God, I'm a good girl. I'm a good boy. See, I did good today. And then we live with this mentality of the imperative before the indicative. We're trying to get to, finally, we're constantly trying to get to the indicative through the avenue of the imperative. I just got to keep doing it, keep working. And let me tell you this. The proof that you're living this way, I'm going to give you a surefire test. You ready? To prove whether or not you're living this way. The proof is, is that when you do better with your obedience and your spirituality, when you're doing good, better, you're living better in obedience, you're doing better in your spiritual disciplines, you feel more love. You feel more righteous. Are you all still with me today? In other words, I had a good time in prayer today. You know, I've, I've been disciplined. I mean, whether I even had some great connection with God, I put in the time for, for a week now. I've been disciplining myself. And so now I'm feeling better and better about my identity in Christ. And we don't realize that our identity, our indicator, our indicative is being built upon our imperatives, what we're doing when it has nothing to do with it. Are y'all still out there today? So you see, you must get to the point 
where our, in, where our imperatives are come out of our indicatives to such a degree to whether, listen to this, whether we perform well or not on any given day, we don't feel any more or less loved by God. Are you all still out there today? Hallelujah. Now let me just say this, and I'm going to wrap this up with this. I've actually only gotten to about 20% of my message. But that's nothing new, right? So I'm going to skip right to the end. Oh, there's so much good stuff in between, you can't believe it. It's amazing. But watch this. Listen to this. I want to show you something. Whenever Jesus goes, they may want to put it up, I don't know, but when you go to the passage of Scripture there, uh, thou shalt not murder. This is verse 21. You know, he goes now to these, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. When you give, don't tell, broadcast all over town, do it. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you pray, do it in secret. Don't get up there in all your big broad garments and boast about, you know, when you fast, you know, do it on the down low, all, all of these things. So he goes out and he begins this way. He says this, can you put that up there? Uh, the one about murder? All right. Verse 21, it's Matthew 5, 21. Do you see that? I want you to get this up there. All right. See there, T-O-T-E-L-L. -L. Right there. It's not that. Have so much, you. Okay, anyway, let me just tell you what it says, because you actually know what it says. He says this. He said, Jesus said, all right, thank you. You're just playing with me back there, aren't you? I know. Look at this. You have heard that it was said. This is Jesus. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder, shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Keep it. I'm going to go to the next verse in a minute. So Jesus, here, here's what Jesus does. So remember now, he first establishes the indicative. He said, now I'm going to go to how you should live, what this should mean to your daily life. And he starts out with this. He says, you shall not murder. What's he doing? Listen, in the previous verse, he just said, now here's what you need to know as you move from the indicative to the imperative. You need to know that you need a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And we'll look at that, and some people think, oh, my God, how can I be more righteous than the Pharisees? I mean, for the Pharisees, it was a full-time job. I mean, I got a job and kids, got to mow the lawn and everything. I mean, it ain't fair for God to ask me to do more than them. That's not what he's doing. The word exceeds there doesn't mean do more than. It means to surpass. It actually means a different kind of righteousness. Now, listen to this. He said, if you want to understand how your, your do comes out of your who, he said, then you need to have a different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees do. It's kind of like the old, I love the old story. I've heard it for many, year, many years ago. It's the story of the guy who was back in the woods and cut down, or he was chopping his wood, cutting up his wood all the time with a handsaw. He only had a handsaw. And then he finally goes to the store one day and he buys a chainsaw. And he comes back home. And when he gets home, he, the, you know, the chainsaw doesn't do the job. He goes back to the store, and he says to the guy, what's this deal? You cost all this money, and this chainsaw don't even work as good, as good as the handsaw. I can cut it a lot faster with the handsaw. 
And the clerk said, let me see it in a minute. He takes his thing, pulls his finger, boom, and the guy goes, what was that? Think about it a moment. Anyway. In other words, the guy didn't understand that the chainsaw was not just a different kind of cutting that you worked harder and the same MO with, but the chainsaw was a different kind of working. In the handsaw, listen to this, this is simple, but it does the job. In the handsaw, you do all the work. With the chainsaw, you still have to work. You still have to cooperate. But you're cooperating with the chainsaw, and the chainsaw does the work. You see, it's like, I mean, that's just as clear as day to me. So anyway, Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, don't be like these Pharisees. He said, you know what they say? They talk about thou shalt not murder. You know what murder is? Murder is outward behavior. They deal with outward behavior. You know what Jesus says? He said, next verse. He says, here's what I say. He said, what I say is that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, did you see what he's, what's happening here? He's saying, here's the righteous. Here's how your righteousness is to be different than the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees, their righteousness deals with outward behavior. If they perform well in their external behavior, then they're righteous. What Jesus deals with is not the outward behavior. He deals with the inward condition of the heart. So in other words, as simple as this, and I'll say this and I'm going to close. Watch this. That he... The Pharisees basically looked at their righteousness as a fence. So let's just say this is a fence. There's the fence. That's the law. So anyway, inside that fence, watch this. With the Pharisees, as long as I stay inside this fence, I'm good. I'm righteous. So it says, thou shalt not murder. So I haven't murdered anybody. Has anybody here murdered anybody? Nobody's murdered anybody. If you have, don't raise your hand. All right. So I haven't murdered, so I'm inside the, the fence, right? Also, it says, it says, thou shalt not steal. There, I'm in. Oh, good. I, I haven't stolen. I'm in, still, still inside the fence. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I haven't committed adultery. Have you committed it? No, don't, don't raise your hand. All right. All right. All of these things, you could go on and on and on. And as long as I do this, that's, this was the idea of the Pharisees about their righteousness. As long as I stay, do the, obey these things, I'm inside the fence and I'm good. And Jesus comes along and he blows the thing out of the water. And here's what he said. You guys talk about this thing inside the fence stuff. You should not murder. He said, I say to you, that you shall not even be angry. Watch this. So I haven't, no, watch this. You haven't murdered anybody, right? Right? But how many of you have been angry at people? I mean, even in the last week, maybe. Lift your hand. Come on, lift your hand. Come on. Lying is, in, lying is inside, outside the fence also. So yeah. how many of you have been angry? Lift your hand. Angry. Angry at someone. 
He said, do not be angry. So what are you going to do? I haven't killed anybody. But Jesus gave me a whole new standard of righteousness. He said, you can't even be angry at anybody. And he said, I've been angry. Or, you know, I haven't committed adultery. But watch this. Woo! He said, you shall not lust. So you haven't committed adultery, right? But let me tell you, again, God will see you for lying. Lying is wrong too. Listen, but how many of you have lusted after a woman or a man? You've lusted. Lift your hand. Now I'm saying, you ready? One, two, three, raise your hand. If you've lusted, lift your hand. Now, 90% of you are lying right now. <laughs> if you have not lusted, you're not breathing. I'm making a point here. The point is, the point is, Jesus puts righteousness outside of the fence so far that there's no possible way for us to ever meet this and keep it. It's impossible. That's why when the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, how many times should we forgive our brother in a day? And then they gave him a suggestion. Seven times. That's a good number. And Jesus comes back to him and he said, no, 490 times. See, they said seven because that's a number you can count. You with me now? Jesus said 490 because there's no way you can count 490. Matter of fact, it's impossible for someone to offend you 490 times a day. I figured it out, added it up, and you know what that would be? They would have to sin against you or offend you once every 2.9 seconds throughout the day. And that's if you didn't sleep 24 hours a day. Every 2.9 seconds. And the point is, it's just not going to happen. Jesus gave them a number they could not possibly count up in a day. Lust, anger, these are things that are so far beyond the fence that we, we can never keep it. How are we going to attain that righteousness? Jesus said, that's why you need a different kind of righteousness. You need a righteousness where your indicative creates your imperative, not flows out of your imperative. Amen. I can go on and on. Let's stand to our feet. God bless you all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening today. We pray this message encourages you. If you have any questions or you'd like to learn more about us as a church, you can always visit us online by going to lifechurchstl.com.